Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes and my guest today is Victoria Berlin. Welcome to Our Shelves, Victoria. It's a real pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. (laughs) Well, Victoria is a writer, journalist and translator of Persian literature and poetry. She has a column in the Financial Times and her writing on culture and lifestyle topics has appeared in the New York Times magazine, Elle, Red Magazine and Marie Claire. She speaks 18 languages, including Japanese, Turkish and Indonesian. Born in Ukraine, Victoria grew up in the USA and now lives in Brussels, Belgium. Her book, The Rooster House, a Ukrainian family memoir, was published by Virago earlier this year. Now, Victoria, I obviously want to ask you a little bit about The Rooster House. But first, I have to say, 18 languages. That seems an extraordinary number by any stretch of the imagination. It's more just... than anyone needs, honestly. <laughs> That's it's very addictive. Do you just love learning them? Yes, I do enjoy learning languages and, uh, you know, I learn uh, a new language from a different family and then I feel, ah, I noticed this connection and it's just so exciting. It's wonderful to be able to communicate with people in their own language when I travel and uh, it's just, I feel like it's a window into another world. I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, did you, so these languages, I presume, obviously, you learned some as a child, you obviously, you know, born in Ukraine, moved to uh, uh, America. So obviously, you, and your English is completely fluent and much better than mine, I think. Uh, but, <laughs> but were you learning other languages all that time? Are you still learning them now? Are you always adding sort of new strings to your bow? Is it a kind of a constant interest as life goes on? Yes, I actually started learning languages when I was a child, and I was inspired by my stepfather for him uh, reading literature and and languages were a window out of the Soviet Union, and he couldn't travel for a number of different reasons, and in general, traveling outside of the Soviet Union was very difficult, and for him, reading was a way to escape, and reading in other languages was a way to discover even more. Mm-hmm. So I grew up with that idea of, uh, you know, words in different languages as a way to discover something, as a way to escape your reality, to widen your horizons, and that has stayed with me. 
And uh, I would say about uh, 10 years ago, uh, when online learning became so much easier with all these different platforms that started appearing, I mean, it's really quite recent, uh, where, you know, you have such a concentration of different ways to learn or and to meet people uh, to be cool. native speakers. Yeah, that's that really sped up my rate of acquisition. It's incredible. I just I think also from someone like me who barely speaks English, the idea of speaking that many is like you say, it's the kind of opening up of so many worlds that are otherwise closed off to us. And I think um, I think also the British as a nation, we're not the best at languages. Let's put it that way. I know plenty of people who can speak multiple languages, but it's not something we're particularly good at doing and we need to get better. So um, you are an inspiration to us all. Let's put it that way. <laughs> It's, you know, every time I hear uh, how, you know, the technology makes, uh, you know, learning languages kind of not as uh, useful as it would have been, you know, 20 years ago, 50 years ago. But I still think that there is nothing to replace the way, you know, the, the language, uh, the language that people speak, um, national language or languages. And, uh, and it's very important to, you know, to read literature in translation, of course, you know, translation as a translator myself, I re- recognize that that's a very important task uh, because, you know, to be able to capture someone else's words, uh, to translate them, to reinterpret them as sometimes translation is, I mean, that's a way to give someone a taste of another culture, of another place, if they cannot travel or if they simply want to know more. It's just essential. Mm, absolutely. And I'm also thinking, obviously, about the Rooster House. There's even elements um, in that that it's, I found it fascinating to work out who in your family was speaking Russian at various points, who's speaking Ukrainian and what these different languages even mean within quite a kind of small family unit, right? It's just the whole story, actually, if you start tracing, you know, like who speaks what and why. Mm. At first, it seems like a random choice uh, that, you know, Russian and Ukrainian, they're not uh, as different as, say, you know, Chinese and English. But there are still uh, political choices and various, uh, you know, social choices that went into those decisions. Mm. So what seems as random at first becomes actually like a key to understand so much about people that I'm talking about. And to give you an example, my uh, mother grew up in a military town and uh, where the military town was located in Ukraine, but the personnel was mostly Russian. And so they had no Ukrainian language as part of their school program. And uh, my mom never learned to speak Ukrainian. And at home, they only spoke Russian. So I once uh, asked Valentina, why did she not speak Ukrainian to my mom and uh, her sister? That uh, to me, that, you know, it seemed like she would empower them. Yeah. But, uh, But she said, well, it was actually to also to assimilate, for them to assimilate better in that environment because uh, Ukrainians were discriminated against. I did not want them to be discriminated against mm-hmm. at school, etc., etc., because they were uh, Ukrainian. And then I was thinking of my uh, parents-in-law and uh, my husband is of Indian descent. He was born in India, but he grew up in the UK. And um, his parents spoke to him and his brother in English. 
not in you know their local language yeah. and for the same reason because they wanted their boys to become assimilated as soon as possible and not to suffer you know the uh, tones or because of their accent or things like that so what seems to us uh, you know it seems to me kind of like a shame of why didn't you teach them the language uh, really becomes a question of survival and the question of how do you envision future for your children? Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, there's tragic elements to that because there's always um, like a concomitant loss with whatever choice you take, but uh, it's not incidental. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You mentioned there Valentina. She's very important in the memoir. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about her and also about the sort of the genesis of, of coming to write this memoir in particular. Obviously, it, it arrives on the sort of shelves, as it were, at a moment when we're all in this country very aware of what's happening very recently in Ukraine, what's currently happening. But you obviously you'd started work on this before the current conflict started, right? Or before this current stage in the conflict, I should probably say. Yes, started. absolutely. I started working on the book. Well, you know, the, the genesis of it all was in 2014, which the year when Ukraine kind of returned to my consciousness. I lived outside of Ukraine for many years at that point. But with the annexation of Crimea and the conflict in eastern Ukraine, it just it came back to me and I just uh, felt so much pain. Mm, I was not able to understand what was going on. I was really struggling. And at the same time, I discovered that uh, what seemed to me as black and white to many people, including those in my family, including uh, my uncle, Vladimir, uh, the conflict with whom really starts the book, uh, all of that was so difficult to get, you know, to, to understand. And um, I started thinking how I can put some of these ideas on paper. I started keeping a diary and I kept everything, you know, just different emails that even people would send to me. I would put it all in that diary, Uh, even things that were quite banal, you know, not important ones. But just because they were happening at the same time, I kept notes of everything. And... uh, At the time, I was speaking with Valentina, and I realized that for her, there was a way to protect herself uh, from the pain, from the trauma of everything, because it was also a very difficult time for all of us. For her, it was to focus on her garden, on her projects day to day, on helping her neighbors. And we would talk about uh, everything but the war. So in some sense, it was a little bit frustrating because I always wanted to talk to her about Mm -hmm. what was going on. On the other hand, it also gave me a space to reflect and to, to think about something else. Valentina is a key figure in our family. And uh, she kind of assumed the mental of the family leader after her parents passed away in the 90s, mid-90s. And she took over their house, she took over their garden, and she continued many of the same traditions that they kept. And she became for us, you know, this guardian of memories, of stories, of Poltava itself. She was really the embodiment of the place. 
So in my book, uh, she's such a key figure because really everything is revolves around her. Yeah, she's so wonderful, and it's such a. Um, it I mean, this book opened my eyes to so many things, but at the heart, this one wonderful portrait of this incredibly vibrant woman, and I love that. It's so important that you mentioned that this is not just a book about the sort of bad things that are happening and, and dwelling on that. There's a real sense of life being lived and a sort of vivacity and the way that she is out there working in her garden every day. <laughs> when I love it when you turn up and then she sort of thinks she's worked you too hard over the first sort of couple of days <laughs> compared to what she's used to doing. Yes, she's uh, she was so devoted to that garden at first. It just drove me crazy. Like, why are you spending so much time in it? Yeah. You know, doing all this work it's not necessary and uh, then i realized of course you know just i you know for her that's her main responsibility she took over the garden and her main responsibility is to make it bloom mm, exactly um i know we're going to pick up a little bit on uh the the book again later in one of our questions but just to finish this section um could you just tell our readers the name of the book the rooster house what does this refer to and why is it so important in the memoir the Rooster House is the colloquial name for the KGB headquarters in our town of Poltava, a town in central Ukraine. And uh, it's this beautiful building that was constructed at the turn of the 20th century to house a bank, uh, but it became appropriated by the secret police in its different incarnations. And uh, the latest Soviet one was KGB. So the facade is flanked by two big red sirens uh, and uh, people would colloquially call them roosters. <laughs> and the place, because no one would talk about KGB out loud, and uh, so it became kind of the, you know, a way to uh, make this terrifying place seem less so and refer to it as the rooster house. And that rooster house was to me the embodiment of everything that all the fears that the Soviet period uh, held and uh, also kind of the embodiment of a place in which we imprison ourselves with our own fears that we keep ourselves uh, bound and uh, we do not, do not allow ourselves to escape, to be free and to be able to speak our minds. And that's a very important theme in the book so for that reason, I uh, selected the Rooster House as the title. It's perfect. It's brilliant. Right. We're going to come back to it a little bit later. I know you're going to talk about um, a particular uh, particular person who turns up in the book. But before then, uh, let's get into some of these main questions. Can you tell me a little bit about a couple of books that are currently on your nightstand at the moment, please, Victoria? Uh, yes, there are two books. And um, I'm... Uh, I finished, uh, nearly finished uh, both of them, but um, I really enjoyed them. And uh, definitely My Soul is a Woman but by Anne-Marie Schimmel is, uh, is a book I much recommend. It's uh, Schimmel was a famous scholar of uh, uh, Persian and Islamic literature and history. And she examines the role of women in Islam and uh, she, you know, there's some controversial elements because Shimal is critical of those who think that the role of women is Islam is always secondary, is always. You know, um, she basically breaks down many stereotypes and uh, explores, you know, the different 
elements of Islamic spirituality and how they're uh, linked with uh, the idea of the feminine and uh, and in general the feminine language of the mystical tradition in Islam. And she she wrote quite a bit about Sufism, so her works are fascinating. Yeah, I was wondering whether, was this something that you, was this an area that you had a particular interest in prior to picking this book up? Did you know much about it or did it really open your eyes to things you hadn't come across before? Well, I was all, I was particularly interested in Schimmel herself. She was such a fascinating person and uh, she wrote, I don't know, 80 books or something wow. incredible. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, and the first book uh, that uh, by her that I read was on Sufism. And mm. it was really fascinating and uh, just so rich. And there was another book on uh, Persian poetry that she wrote sort of like on the cuff, feeling like, okay, she needed to take a break from uh, and wrote this uh, um, lovely little book, which is like 400 pages, very rich. <laughs> <laughs> People like that. That's such a, the idea that that would be the sort of the, 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 the easy book that you do between the more Yes, books. yes. <laughs> well, she was the kind of person who would say, oh, I just found that I actually wrote a book, you know, a few years ago. <laughs> Wow. It's it was in my in my drawer. <laughs> so she she was also, you know, kind of controversial because she she spoke against those kind of very um um spoke against some of the held beliefs about Islam and sometimes she could appear as basically protecting or taking a stand on behalf of fundamentalists. Uh, but her points or this were kind of much more nuanced than people gave her credit for. And she just fascinated me as a person. And her own work is just really, really interesting. How wonderful. And the second book is something a little bit different, isn't it? So, yeah, the second book is just uh, kind of like a fun uh, book for me to read. It's called Food Artisans of Japan by Nancy Singleton Hachisu, uh, a writer who's based, uh, who lives in Japan and has been living in Japan for many years, married to a Japanese farmer. And she has several wonderful books. And this particular book uh, is interesting because she highlights a specific artisan, maybe a restaurateur, producer of sake or soy sauce or salt, and she describes them, gives their recipes, and it just, it feels like every chapter is just, there's so much passion and such a respect for uh, these people who work often driven by their own passion rather than, you know, anything else. Mm. So it's a very interesting book to read. And I myself find artisans of all uh, types really fascinating as so. So is it that that drew you to it rather than the, the food element or are you particularly interested in Japanese sort of cookery as well? Yeah, I'm interested in Japanese food as well. And uh, I like to cook Japanese food at home. Mm. So, but that specifically the artisanal aspect of it is what drew me to this book uh, because I have other books by, uh, by Nancy. Mm, she has a number of excellent ones, but this is the only book that I actually read cover to cover. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it just, that engaging 
It sounds wonderful. I um, I wasn't sure whether to put it in that sort of group of a lot of people like reading cookbooks at bedtime, don't they? Enjoy the kind of looking through all the recipes. But this seems like it's something more than that. It is talking about. No, food. it's more like people's stories. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Sounds brilliant. OK, I'm going to look up both of those as, uh, as soon as I can. Um, uh, next up then, Victoria, can you tell me about a... Well, we asked about a recent TV show, podcast, article, something that's been on your mind, but you've chosen something a little bit different this week, haven't you? Um, so uh, there were some songs by Daha Braha, a Ukrainian band, this kind of um, ethno-rock, uh, I think that's the style of their music. And I like uh, all of their songs. There's one called Spring, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. And there is one really upbeat called Carpathian Rap. Mm, and this week in particular, uh, I've been uh, watching. It's also, I guess, I'm really in, in like in Japanese mood recently. <laughs> <laughs> but I've been watching this series on NHK called uh, Hometown Stories, and they are stories about people in different small towns around Japan, oh. and uh, sometimes they're about you know a village where about a couple who work on their farm and uh, the only catch is that the farm is very steep and these people are in their 80s and they're wow. doing this heartbreaking heart uh, breaking work but uh, really really fascinating and uh, or about a service that organizes trips for people who are nearing their end maybe they have a uh, an illness or um something like that Hmm. Mm, there are all sorts of stories some of them are quite quirky but uh, they're really really fascinating what is it but is it just these the sort of slice of life that's different to your own that is is so intriguing about these particular um that they sound i haven't watched them myself but they sound like sort of quite quite small sort of slivers of people's lives right so you just get a sort of sense of how it might be yeah, it's just that uh, I keep thinking of a poem by Basho, a Japanese poet, um, a haiku, my neighbor, how does he live, I wonder. That fascination about other people's lives, how do people uh, live, how do they go about their life, what do they dream of. It's uh, it's that kind of um, interest, that, that kind of glimpse that, that draws me. And it sounds like you're very interested in the sort of granular levels of this. It doesn't need to be, these don't need to be sort of big, you know, big stories that sort of, you know, make the headlines or front pages. You want to know the sort of day-to-day, the, the detail of these lives so you can sort of feel it in your own, I don't know, like, like sort of be a part of it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, sometimes, you know, when you read uh, works of history, I find that what draws me Sometimes uh, to particular event is just uh, some details that mm. kind of throw light onto uh, whatever was happening at that time in a very unexpected way. Yeah, it makes me think as well about what you were talking about at the beginning in terms of your interest in languages as well. It's the sense that you are able to then you are able to see something or kind of grasp something, some detail that might not be available in a sort of a more removed process of translation or looking at the bigger picture you want those little details yes it's um it's those details everything you know the in in the details i feel that it's just so essential the you know the sound the smells the colors 
um, you know, someone's word um, dropped inadvertently. Mm. That's uh, all of that kind of uh, makes whole the whole. Yeah, and also to be able to kind of understand the um, the sort of nuances of that word as well, right? That that's yes. that that is so important that there is always something lost in translation, however good the process. It's you know they, there are always those. I suppose as a translator as well, it must be. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there must be certain points where you come across and you realise that there is a word that we just don't have the equivalent of in the language you're trying to translate into. And is that a, do you look on that as a challenge or is it a sort of frustration or a mixture of both? You know, sometimes it depends. Usually if there is no word specifically one-to-one kind of, uh, uh, then it's fine. Uh, that does not trouble me. It's more sometimes the, the frustration comes when, I know what the writer was trying to say and uh, the way that she used it in uh, in her own language um, was so beautiful and so elegant. And once you render it word for word, it loses that elegance. And, uh, and then specifically, and I say she, because I was thinking of the uh, Iranian author I'm working with, Zahra Abdi. She's a poet to begin with, so her language is very rich and very colorful. And often there are these, uh, you know, metaphors and very subtle allusions to something else, to another poem. And in Iranian culture, for instance, there is such a rich tradition of poetry. So many people, you can say one word, and people already can hear the whole poem in their heads. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, trying to translate something like that is, uh, it becomes a frustrating. It's like, oh, I just, it means like I have to kind of give like a whole chapter explanation <laughs> on this poetry and or this poems and its context, etc. Yeah. It's I mean, like, I think I was imagining. Fair. Yeah, I would imagine that translating poetry was one of the hardest acts of translation because everything is not, it's not just about the the literal meaning of that word. In fact, it's often not about that and you do need to get, but the idea that you would even have these resonances that are, that a different audience would be able to sort of get by themselves without you having to kind of put anything into it, that makes the process so much more demanding. Wow. Yes, it's, uh, it's exciting, but uh, it's also really demanding. Yeah, exactly. Our shells be back in just a moment. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to Our Shelves. I'm Lucy Scholes, and I'm talking to Victoria Belim about the uh, frustrations and excitement of translating poetry. Uh, thank you, Victoria, for sharing that with us. Uh, next up, could you tell us a little bit about a book that made you think about feminism in a new way? Well, uh, perhaps it's not going to be such a, a revelation, but uh, A Room of One's Own by Virginia Woolf, I really think that book, um, to me, it was like um, lightning struck. It was it was incredible. The first time I read it um, many years ago, I remember how it affected me. And uh, I reread it recently and I still felt that thrill, you know, her ability to describe that, you know, the luxury of having your own space, you know, mental space, physical space, and the importance of carving out time uh, for yourself. Mm. And uh, often I talk to uh, my friends uh, who are women, and I find that all of us struggle with that. All of us have responsibilities and obligations to others. And often we treat those obligations to others before we treat, you know, to our uh, own desires or we pay attention to our own needs. And in some cultures, you know, it becomes, it's more pronounced than in others. Mm. And that always strikes me as quite, uh, quite tragic. That, um, you know, many things that Wolf uh, is describing, it's still relevant today more than ever. Yeah, I always find these are, these sort of conversations that I, I have on the show where we ask someone to talk about a book like this and they have a similar response to you that it's something they read a while ago they return to it it still means something to them it's very poignant but it's also quite sad because you think that you know so many so many years have passed since she wrote this book and yet like you say we're still a lot of women are still trying to deal with these same issues which is you know problematic and don't seem to be going away anytime soon um do you remember exactly what age you were or even roughly what age you were when you first read this i might have been um uh, I would say 18, 17, 18. So really quite a kind of formative period in your yes. life as well. Yeah. And I was writing at the time. I was already, you know, interested in writing. And uh, and I was thinking, you know, just her example, Wolf's example of uh, an imaginary uh, Shakespeare sister. Mm. And uh, that really struck with me. Yeah, yeah. Stuck with me. And um, what was there a particular thing that um, uh, encouraged you to go back to the book recently? Was it just that it was there on your shelves, or did something make you think I need to look at this again and see if I remember? Because I'm always fascinated by reading things, <laughs> after, you know, after quite a long time has passed, and particularly if you read them at a point in your life where you were maybe quite young and impressionable. And I'm always a little bit wary of going back to things I loved, but it seems like it was still important, an important text this time round. For me, it was more of a serendipity because we moved recently and I started reorganizing my bookshelves. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to put all of the, you know, English literature together. Oh. And um, 
the books by Virginia Woolf kind of occupied their own shelf. And then there was just this a room of one's own was in its own uh, separate edition, a uh, small little book. And uh, started. Uh, I opened it, started reading, and I just ended up sitting surrounded by uh, uh, half-unpacked uh, book uh, boxes and <laughs> reading. <laughs> I feel like that's one of the best things you can say for a book is that, that you've got unpacked boxes of books everywhere, but this has captured your attention so much amongst all the others that you're just going to sit and read it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so Wonderful. Uh, you're making me want to go back and read it. I'm trying to think it's been a while since I last uh, uh, looked at it properly. So maybe I'll have to go and read out my own copy after this. Um, I think we're going to go back to talking a little bit about the Rooster House now, because uh, for the uh, woman or a person of an unrepresented gender whom you admire, you've picked, uh, uh, I want to say a character, but she's not a character, she's a real woman who appears in your memoir. Tell me a little bit about this. So I picked Nadia Vakulenko. She's an embroidery artist. Um and about whom I wrote in my book. She, she's really an impressive person. Uh, she's so passionate about her art. She's been embroidering for many years and she's been teaching, often teaching for free, teaching anyone who had interest to learn and utterly devoted to her students. And she set a goal for herself to get a UNESCO recognition for the white-on-white embroidery technique that's really famous uh, in the town of Reshetilivka. And uh, <clears throat> it happened uh, uh, at the time when uh, uh, Ukraine was trying to get UNESCO recognition for a number of other things as well, including borscht. And uh, so she was struggling a lot with bureaucracy <laughs> and trying to get all of the proofs and examples and uh, materials and paperwork. It's, it's really quite complicated. Mm. Uh, but um, she's, she's devoted to it utterly and absolutely. And I always admire people who have a goal and who work toward it no matter what. Mm. Could you, for readers who aren't aware of it, what, what is the technique? Can you describe the technique of her so embroidery? So the technique is, it's an embroidery technique, but it uses only pastel colors, usually just white. What uh, an artisan does is uh, to remove threads from a piece of fabric and then embroider on the remaining threads. And the effect is almost like lace, except it's an embroidery. So there are dozens of different techniques that go into it, and uh, it's it's really quite amazing. It's the pieces are airy, bright. They're beautiful floral motifs or leaves, petals, berries, and geometrical shapes. Mm. Uh, it's just striking, very elegant. The, one, the ones I've seen are just so they seem so delicate and elegant and sort of but but have this sort of odd almost sort of three-dimensional effect even though they're so I don't know how someone does it it sort of it impresses me so much that somebody could do that with their with their own hands you know yes it's it's really amazing when you well I tried uh, she uh, she taught me how to do a few techniques oh wow yes I tried uh, to embroider myself and um, it's it's such a you know painstaking <laughs> work. <laughs> You're not going to take it up as a as a hobby then. 
Um, yeah, well, with someone who just whose vision is like really poor, it's probably not the best <laughs> hobby. <laughs> Yeah. maybe maybe leave that uh, to the professionals or the experts yeah. um and for any listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read your book could you just explain how did you first meet her how did you come across her i decided to travel to well um i decided to travel to rishatilivka the town where nadia works to look for any traces of my great-grandmother who used to work in that same town um in the 30s and the 40s and uh, it was just uh, also connected with another serendipitous encounter in Poltava. I met a lady at the church, a volunteer, uh, who was interested in embroideries and uh, Pani Olga. And uh, with Pani Olga, uh, we started traveling around, uh, you know, Poltava, looking for embroideries and different churches that held different embroideries. But then we decided to go to Reshitilivka. And Pani Olga wanted to, to see these embroideries, the white and white embroideries. And I wanted to look for my great-grandmother. And in the end, we, uh, we met uh, Nadia and it became a friendship for really strong friendship for both of us mm. it's quite an incredible encounter it's wonderful yeah. i mean the but that's i think that's uh, a bit like i was saying earlier one of the kind of amazing things about this book is these wonderful people you met you meet in the process of you're tracking down your own family you're tracking down history um but you're also coming into account you, you come across these people who whose lives are so sort of rich and brilliant and your life is uh sort of enriched by knowing them in, in so many ways and you get a sense of a real kind of a burgeoning community around you there which I think is is very moving to read about. Yes and it's something that I really miss now because I realized over the years that I've been living in Belgium uh, now 12 years mm -hmm. and every year I've been traveling uh, to Ukraine spending summers there and uh, I developed kind of this group of friends um with whom I had uh, very, you know, many interests in common. And we met, uh, you know, doing things that both of us enjoy doing and kind of really strengthened the ties uh, between us. And um, I really miss not seeing them now. Yeah. We, you know, we speak on the phone or via Skype, but, you know, it's really not the same. No, no. And it's like what you said, that sort of the sense of being there, being able to be a part of that community and, and see those people. I mean, I really hope you can get back there soon. It's a, it's a horrible situation to be in. Yeah. Um, and last up today then, uh, Victoria, if I may, could you tell us what your golden apple is? That's the Virago book that you would regularly recommend to others amongst all of the wonderful books on the Virago shelves, including your own. <laughs> Uh, well, there are actually all of the books by Sylvia Townsend Warner, but Lolly Willows uh, is a book that I really enjoy. It was, uh, uh, I don't know if it was the first Virago book that I read, probably not, uh, but uh, I just, um, it was the first uh, Sylvia Townsend Warner's book that I read and that made me a big fan. It's such a thoughtful book, beautifully written, engaging, uh, charming, quirky, witty, uh, everything, uh, utterly entertaining, and yet so, so thought-provoking. Mm -hmm. And again, about the importance of your own space, importance of doing 
things that you like, um, importance of attending to your personal wishes um, first and balancing that with responsibilities towards others. I think uh, these are such important topics for women, uh, no matter where or what time. I thought it was such a wonderful book to have as a sort of companion piece to a room of one's own because, you know, Virginia Woolf's call for having a room of one's own and Sylvia Townsend Warner has Lolly Willow say at one point that she wants a life of her own, doesn't she? Mm-hmm. she wants, yes. It's exactly what you're saying, this idea you want space, you want ability to be by yourself and to live the life that you want rather than living the life that other people are expecting you to live. Um, and I'm sure most of our listeners have probably heard of Lolly Willows, but just for anyone who hasn't yet, can you just say, a little bit about what what is the book about? Who is Lolly Willows? <laughs> the book is about a witch. <laughs> <laughs> you have to say it. You have to get it in there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the it's it's just uh, such a it's such a it's I mean it's called like a comedy of manners mm-hmm. I guess with elements of fantasy. Uh, this was I remember how a friend uh, described it to me. And, uh, uh, but I think it's really about so much, uh, um, so much more. Um, and uh, it's about uh, um, a middle-aged woman who uh, basically escapes her meddling relatives and takes up uh, witchcraft. <laughs> it's the sort of feature that so many of us want. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's how I always like to think of it. She decides to leave her brother's house. She doesn't want to live there as a sort of non-paid help anymore and moves to the countryside and becomes a witch. And it's it's just glorious. I think you've... It's just glorious. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a wonderful place to end. I think if anyone hasn't read Lolly Willows, get it immediately. It's also a very good... I always think of it as a lovely autumnal book. I feel she moves to the countryside at the beginning of the autumn and there's a sense of the season changing and her finding herself. So I feel like it's a good time of year to go back and revisit this book as well. If you revisit it, discover it, whatever. Because it's when she shops for flowers um, that she decides that she wants to move to the uh, Chiltern Hills. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, leave London behind, move to the Chiltern Hills, discover witchcraft. What more could you want in the world yeah um victoria thank you so much it's been a real pleasure to talk to you today thank you for sharing all your wonderful recommendations and for speaking so eloquently and movingly about the memoir and um i hope you are able to get back to ukraine soon thank you very much thank you for having me Thank you everyone else for listening. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. Special thanks to today's guest, Victoria Berlin, and tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism, and culture. Mm-hmm.